0: from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit Trinitygracesa.org. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. So glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest here. If you've got a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Luke chapter 6. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things this morning. First, be listening for a story about imitating your parents. Imitating your parents. Second, be listening for a story about a football coach. A story about a football coach. And third, be listening for a story about the love of a church in Charleston. The love of a church in Charleston. Well, many of you know that we're in a fall sermon series working our way through the gospel according to Luke. And this series is hopefully going to take us up to the Advent season here at Trinity Grace. And this morning we're going to be considering a passage in Luke's gospel that is his parallel to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. What we're about to read in Luke chapter 6 is going to sound a lot like the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5 through 7 just in a slightly different sequence. And this is one reason many people believe that the teaching we find in the Sermon on the Mount was the preaching material Jesus used multiple times throughout the course of His ministry. This was the sermon that He took out and about as He traveled town to town in His preaching ministry. And in this portion of Luke, Jesus is painting a picture of what it looks like to follow Him. Jesus came in order to establish a new community. One that is centered on God's love, a community that's countercultural. And Jesus is describing in some detail the values and priorities of this new community for us in Luke chapter 6. Now, if you were to ask someone on the side of the street what characteristics they value in a person, you would likely hear many of the same characteristics from people. In our culture, the people who tend to be valued and respected are those who are aggressive, those who are assertive, those who are tough, those who are self-assured, those who don't get pushed around, those who can make things happen. These are the kind of qualities that our culture believes lead to the good life. These are the kind of people that we often admire. Yet, when we look at the way of Jesus from Luke chapter 6 and in other places in the scriptures, he gives us a different list of characteristics that lead to the good life. Jesus is giving us a different way altogether. And this morning we come to a passage where Jesus paints a picture of a disciple that our world would likely look at and just shake its head in disbelief. What Jesus is calling his followers to in this passage goes against every fiber of our being. It goes against the grain of what our culture respects and values. Yet this command from Jesus is arguably the preeminent command in all the Gospels. It encapsulates so much of Christ's teaching and it is the way to the beautiful life, even though it feels so foreign to each one of us. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Well, it's not abnormal for kids to wanna be like their dad. I experienced this while growing up. My dad was a police officer in Memphis, Tennessee. And I remember putting on my police uniform as a kid and going out into our cul-de-sac so that I could direct traffic. And our neighbors were always very gracious to follow my traffic commands, uh, even though I was only six years old at the time. I remember when my son was young. He had grown up watching his dad lead worship and preach for most of his life. So he began collecting Sunday morning worship bulletins. And he would use those bulletins to lead worship and to preach a sermon and to serve communion in his room as a four-year-old. And I would look at him and say, son, you can do anything else, do it. We want people to be ministers, but we want your kids to be ministers, right? Not mine. What we're experiencing, though, in these instances with our kids encapsulates the phrase, like father, like son. And it's not unlike what we're called to do as children of God. In the scriptures, we see time and time again that we are meant to imitate and become like our heavenly father. And as you read the scriptures, what you find is that one of the primary characteristics of our Heavenly Father is love. As we become more like our Heavenly Father, we are being called to become a more loving group of people. God calls those who follow Him to love others. You could say that love is the ultimate biblical ethic. Now, it's easy to be nice to those that we like, but that is not Godlike. To be like God, we have to desire the good of those who would do us harm, to love our enemies. And in the passage we just read, we learn that it's when you love those whom you don't naturally love that you know you're following God. It's a great sign, a great indication. The words we just read are likely some of the most famous in all the Bible. Even if you've never attended church in your entire life, you've likely heard these words spoken. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. I wonder, what do you think about those commands this morning? If you're anything like me, you hear commands like that and think, what an ideal picture of what life should look like. But you know that the ideal is oftentimes different than the reality we experience. We can buy into the idea of being non defensive, but the reality is we are super defensive people. We like the idea of loving everyone, but the reality is that it's much easier to love those who love us back. We are attracted to living in such a way that emulates God, that mirrors our Father in heaven, but oftentimes following His call to maturity is just too hard. These commands that come out of Jesus' mouth are both beautiful and unsettling. They're beautiful because they paint a picture of a whole human life, of what we wish we could realize as we follow Jesus. And they're unsettling because we realize that we fall way short of the ideal that Jesus speaks of here. We know that we fail in these areas on a daily basis, even with those that we would claim to love most. What exactly is Jesus calling his followers to in this passage? Why is it that this ideal never seems to become a reality in our lives? How are you and I supposed to process this teaching and move forward and actually living it out? Is there any hope for us? Well, as we scan our passage, we see Jesus highlighting our call as his followers, and he uses kind of a triad to summarize his teaching in verse 35. Look at it. In a sense, he asks, Whom do you love? Whom do you do good toward? And to whom do you lend? And we intuitively know the answer to those questions, don't we? He hits on it. We normally do those kind of things with people who are safe, with those we expect who will reciprocate in kind. We do those kind of things with those that we like and enjoy. And Jesus asks, what benefit is that? Everyone wants to love and do good and lend to those that we know are inclined to us. Love towards our friends and generosity towards those who can repay us in kind, that is not countercultural. That's the way our culture works. It's natural. It can even be beneficial to your interests sometimes. It costs us nothing. It's easy, it's beneficial to love our neighbor and to hate our enemy. It comes naturally. We're normally encouraged toward this kind of behavior, in fact. It can even make you a hero among your community to hate those who everyone agrees are doing harm to your people's way of life. But Jesus is encouraging his followers here to emulate him when we love. Asking us to love where we don't get credit, when it doesn't make us a hero, when we get nothing in return. And it reminds me of a story I heard a few months back of a pastor telling others that it's hardest for him to visit elderly members in his church who have memory loss or Alzheimer's. In a very honest moment, he said that when he made a visit to elderly who don't struggle with memory loss, he often got credit for that visit. He got some brownie points. His word kind of got around that the pastor's making visits and doing such a great job caring for his congregation. But when he visited those with memory loss or Alzheimer's, He was out of mind as soon as he left the room. And those he visited, they told no one. They didn't even remember he was there. He got no credit. There's no real benefit to him in those visits, even though they were important and meaningful visits. And this pastor brought his example to a point by asking the question, do you love the people you visit or do you just want credit for your love? Do you just want the repayment of admiration and approval? In our passage, we see that we shouldn't seek credit. But it's far more radical than that. Jesus wants his new community to keep his new commandment, to love our enemies, to do good towards those who seek to do us harm, to lend to others without expectation of getting paid back. It's pretty crazy if you think about it. It's a mentality that comes naturally to none of us. Jesus is calling us to a way of life marked by non-retaliation. He wants a group of people who don't resist evil. He wants us to self-sacrifice for those who would seek to do us harm. And he's teaching them how to be peacemakers in practice. But this is hard because you know it goes against every grain of your natural instinct and what the world expects of you. I love how Frederick Bruner puts it in his commentary on this passage. You can see his quote at the beginning of your worship folder. He says, Our immediate reaction to ill treatment from an evil one will be get even, pay back. Jesus' counsel, on the contrary, is don't. Be more creative. Surprise him. In short, be a Christian. Look, this teaching from Jesus stands out even more starkly when you remember the context. The followers of Jesus, the Jewish people, lived in occupied territory. The Jewish people would have been asking, must not the Romans be hated? Must not the Romans be hurt? In fact, people with strong Jewish nationalistic leanings might even have seen Jesus' teaching here as immoral. I'm not going to follow that teaching. But this is the way of Jesus. To love your enemies to do good to those who seek to do you harm, to lend to others without any expectation of being repaid. Now, you likely have so many, well, what about questions popping up in your mind right now, don't you? And it's important to note that Jesus isn't calling his followers to be weak in this passage. He isn't calling his followers to be pushovers necessarily, but he's calling us to stop asserting our personal rights. He's calling us to a radical undefensiveness. He's banning personal retaliation. Don't get even. And it's important to recognize he's speaking specifically to our personal relationships here. There is a place for justice. There are some things that have been done to us by other people that deserve justice, that deserve us being careful around them in relationships. That place is oftentimes in the hands of the state, in the power of the law courts. But you and I are called to give up our rights when it comes to personal relationship. After all, we're a group of people that believes that evil will one day fully and finally get its due. But unfortunately, I'm not qualified to administer that justice myself. God says he's going to be the one to repay. Vengeance is his. We heard it this morning in our Old Testament reading, New Testament reading. It's not ours. And so don't fight back. Don't worry about protecting your personal honor or reputation. Talk about a hard teaching for a group of people like you and me. Reminded of when University of Tennessee hired a new football coach a few years back. I shared this story then too. But University of Tennessee hired Butch Jones from the University of Cincinnati back in 2012-2013 And you might not know this, but University of Tennessee had approached several other coaches for the job before they hired. Butch Jones and all those guys turned the job down. Uh, It was a very sad time for volunteer football back in 2012, 2013. Well, Coach Jones did uh, accept the job um, and he went to a press conference when he got to Knoxville and one of the reporters asked him, Coach Jones... How does it feel to know that you weren't UT's first choice for head coach? I imagine the response to a question like that could have been received rather poorly by Coach Jones. First day on the job, he gets a question like that. He could have said something like, I can't believe that you'd ask me that question. Let me tell you exactly why I'm the best person to lead this team. Most would have expected Coach Jones in that moment to defend himself. But I love his response. He simply smiled and said, I wasn't my wife's first choice either. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, but he illustrated for us what non-defensiveness non-defensive defensive looks like in a, in a pretty good way in that moment. Refusing to assert his personal rights, to get even, to defend his personal armor, uh, honor, and it's disarming. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they shouldn't react in the way that comes naturally. In verse 29 he says that if someone strikes you on the jaw and when everything inside of you wants to hit that person back turn the other jaw to your enemy. When someone takes your cloak offer them your tunic too. In other words go above and beyond. That's the principle here. He doesn't want poppers He doesn't literally want us to take the coat off our back, although sometimes that might be the right thing to do. Jesus is trying to get us to understand that our call is to go above and beyond. Don't clutch tight to what's left. If someone takes something, don't hide the rest of your stuff. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't do the wicked thing that comes naturally to you. Now, you know that these commands, they run completely contrary to our natural inclinations, our natural desires. You and I have a tendency to want to defend ourselves against unjust attack, to retaliate when someone offends us, to assert our rights. You and I have a tendency to show favoritism, to love only those that love us, to associate with those that we like, to lend only to those we know are going to repay us. And the ideal presented in this passage is so far from what we normally experience in life that it almost seems fanciful, far-fetched that we would ever be able to act in love like this. None of what Jesus says in this passage comes naturally to any of us. You know what you need in order to love like this? You need a power that you do not naturally show up into this world with. You need the spirit living in your heart. You need to be converted before you can follow Jesus in this kind of way. You need supernatural power because this kind of love that Jesus is calling his followers to is supernatural love. In practicing, this supernatural love doesn't always look extraordinary. It can look very mundane. We talk about this all the time here. We can extend supernatural love in very natural contexts. In fact, that's normally what you're going to be called to do. A while back, I asked Rachel, my wife, who her enemies were. And she responded by saying, sometimes you are. It changes depending on who's rubbing against me at the time. I know that's hard to believe for you guys. Well, that is right in line with this passage. The term enemy in this passage literally means someone with whom you're at enmity with or in opposition to. Jesus is calling us to love not only the people we get along with naturally, everyone does that. He's calling us to love those we find ourselves opposing, to love those who naturally draw forth our ire. And isn't that oftentimes the people that live within our own walls? Jesus calls us to give up our rights, to quit defending ourselves. And so where do you insist on your rights? Where do you find yourself becoming defensive? Protecting your honor and reputation, I think we got to look at the mundane, everyday relationships. Maybe it's your family, likely is. You come home after a long day of work, you're tired, you've already put in a full day, and you walk into what could be described as chaos. And we could say, I'm done, it's time to relax. Or we could do unto our spouse as we'd want them to do to us. Maybe it's a friend who demands lots of your time. We all have those friends. Some of us are those friends. Maybe they're going through a rough season in life and you've already given them your emotional energy and you're already ready to say, enough, it's time for me to pull back and care for myself. Or you could give them your tunic as well, according to Christ. Maybe it's a coworker who drives you crazy. Someone who makes work feel like a competition. You don't even want to be there. And you could find ways to correct them when they're wrong and outshine them in certain areas so that you get credit. Or you could turn the other cheek, according to Christ. Now, you and I luckily don't have enemies that persecute us physically normally. That's not our experience in the American church. The people that God calls us to love are those who aren't like us, those who might harm us emotionally or relationally or spiritually, who get under our skin. So who threatens you? Who do you have a hard time being in the same room with? Who hates you because of the way that you think or what you believe? Who do you most vehemently disagree with? For some of us, it's a parent who's hurt us passively being absent or actively by what they've done to us. Maybe they wounded you deeply with words early in your life, words that you can't forget. You always screw up. You'll never amount to anything. I wish that you wouldn't eat so much. I don't love you anymore. Maybe it's your spouse who rubs you the wrong way. They never seem to pay attention to your needs. It seems like they're always you're always taking the initiative in all areas of life. They never pitch in where needed. They're not considerate, and sometimes they're just plain mean. And sometimes you find yourself wishing they weren't there. Fantasizing about what life might look like without them. Maybe it's a certain political group. You hate the way they think about life and culture and society. You hate the way they promote their agenda and the way they do it. You hate that they just can't see as clearly as you do on all the important subjects, and you wish they just disappear completely. Maybe it's the awkward person you run into at the office or at your kid's school. Like I said, that's oftentimes us too. The person who makes you feel uncomfortable because of their lack of social skill and emotional maturity, and they take ton of energy to relate with, and it's normally uncomfortable in conversation. You hate running into them. You just wish they weren't a part of your life. Look, you and I tend to love those who can return the favor. Those who are attractive. Those who are lovely. It's easy to be friends with those that we like. Those who are like us. It's really easy to pray for someone you want to know and find favor with. What would it look like to love and pray for those who have nothing to offer? Those who can't help you along your path. Those who would take your time and offer no benefit in return. Those who make you angry. Jesus calls us to give up our defensiveness and to love those who rub us the wrong way. To love those we're in opposition to, even in radical ways. Now, you might as well ask me this morning to pole vault or to dunk a basketball or to play Beethoven on the piano. I cannot naturally do that. And that recognition should drive us to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. And then Jesus empowers us and he sends us back out to follow him empowered by the grace that we've received. That's how obedience in the gospel works. It begins by recognizing that everything Jesus calls us to in this passage, we can't do. It's impossible naturally, but they were done perfectly by him. Jesus was the one who refused to assert his rights when wronged by others. He's the one who turned the other cheek. He gave up all that he had. He refused to defend himself right in the moment when he should have been defending himself the most. He gave generously of himself. Jesus is the one who truly loved his enemies. You should know the word used for enemies here in verses 27 and 35 is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul uses the same word in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, except this time the word is used to refer to you and me. Where he says, while we were enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Jesus is not asking you and me to do anything he himself is not doing on a daily basis with us. Loving those that might push against his agenda. You and I were enemies of God, rightfully deserving his judgment, but God loved his enemies. He loved you and me, and we're called to love in the way we ourselves have been loved. It's an interesting thought. We will love others in the same way we believe that we've been loved by God. Would someone conclude that you have been deeply loved by God if they saw the way you relate to others? Thankfully, we have men and women who have modeled this Jesus way for us over the centuries in the Christian church. And this week, I couldn't stop thinking about our black brothers and sisters in Christ who've been giving us a master class over our country's history and modeling the ethic that Jesus paints for us here in Luke chapter 6. You think of the way that our Christian brothers and sisters endured the experience of slavery and the patient way they engaged the civil rights movement for decades. And I was thinking this week specifically of the incident that happened seven years ago in Charleston where nine of our black brothers and sisters were murdered while attending a midweek Bible study at a manual AME church. A 21-year-old man came to the Bible study, actually attended the study that night, and after it was over, he committed his evil and atrocious actions. And a few weeks later, the nation was wrapped with attention as they were taken to the courtroom. America was given a breathtaking lesson on what love for enemy looks like in practice from the relatives of the Emmanuel Church victims as they stood one by one in the courtroom looking at the man who murdered their sons and mothers and grandfathers through a panel of thick glass offering forgiveness. The daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance stood up in the courtroom while addressing the 20-year-old man who allegedly murdered her mother in church and said, You took something very precious from me, but I forgive you. It hurts me. You hurt a lot of people, but may God forgive you. Speaking of her son, Taiwanza Sanders, who was killed that Wednesday night trying to shield his great aunt from gunfire, Felicia Sanders said to the suspect, We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You've killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. I'll never be the same. She continued Taiwanza was my hero, and as they say in the Bible study, we enjoyed you, and may God have mercy on your soul. Now, what in the world would make a group of people do something like that? What could make you and I do something like that if given the opportunity? The only thing powerful enough to move us to that kind of love for people that we naturally want to hate is this believing more deeply that Jesus came to love those who hated him. And those saints at Emmanuel AME believed that deeply. They had to. Jesus came for his enemies, to love them, to give up his rights and his privileges for his enemies, to lay down his life for them. While you were still an enemy, Jesus came for you. And that's amazing love. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you came to seek and to save the lost, for the way that you have come to make enemies into friends. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we come to embrace your love towards us more deeply, that you would shape and form us into a more loving people, that we might be able to demonstrate radical love if given the opportunity, but more than that, that we might be willing to demonstrate mundane, everyday love to those that we rub shoulders with on a regular basis. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us that power. We don't have it naturally. We need supernatural power to do what Jesus has called us to do, and we pray that you would provide it. It's in his name we pray. Amen.